Our first speaker is uh, Michael Sag, uh, as I said, from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, is going to be talking about the fundamentals of, of antiretroviral therapy. Okay, welcome. This should be fun. Um, a lot of you I noticed in this polling uh, felt were pretty experienced, and that's fine. Uh, the, the talk is primarily geared towards those who are new to the field, but uh, I think this is kind of a fun review of the pathobiology of HIV and how it relates to what we do every day. So maybe for, even for some of you who are more expert, this will be interesting. Um, our, my institutions received some grants for research from Gilead and Vive. So we're going to talk about the um, we're going to talk about the mechanisms of actions of antiretroviral therapy. Uh, we're going to look at viral dynamics and how that plays into what uh, how HIV causes disease and how when you stop replication of HIV, disease progression stops, and that's why we've had such success over the years in treating it. And then explain a little bit about how resistance happens and how we can prevent it. So let's go back to basics. This is a cell, it's called a T cell, and on the far uh, left-hand side, you'll see a receptor and a virus comes down and binds to that CD4 receptor. And through a combination of the envelope region reaching out at the GP41 uh, region of the virus, it connects with the CD4 receptor through GP120, the GP41 part of the envelope harpoons the surface of the cell, and then through the action with a co-receptor called CCR5, the virus enters the cell. It enters a single-stranded RNA, and because it has this unique enzyme reverse transcriptase, which is common to all retroviruses, it's converted from RNA into DNA. And just to recall back to medical school or nursing school or pharmacy school, that most normal transcription of protein starts with DNA going to RNA through that, that's called transcription. This is going RNA to DNA, so that's reverse transcription, which is where that term comes from, and it's done, it's accomplished by this enzyme called reverse transcriptase that goes into two double-stranded DNA. They then migrate into the host nucleus, and the DNA integrates into the host DNA. That is the reason we don't cure HIV. Hepatitis C, we cure. It's an RNA virus. It doesn't have reverse transcription, but it stays in the cytoplasm. And when you stop its replication within 8 to 12 weeks, you've eradicated the virus from the body. Because HIV integrates into the host nucleus, there is no eradication possible at the present time unless you go to some extremes of a bone marrow transplant under certain circumstances. So once it's integrated, it hangs there, and then it can start producing proteins and other components of a new virus that when it goes to the surface, it buds out, and in the process of budding and then a little bit thereafter, the virus particle matures through the action of a unique protease, which means it cuts proteins. And after it bonds, it comes out of the cell as a fully infectious virus, and that process continues on to the next cell. The key point all antiretroviral therapy is focused on preventing an uninfected cell from becoming infected. That's really key. It doesn't do anything 
to a cell that's already infected. And we'll go come back to this concept as the um, talk goes on. Now, back in the early 90s, um, our site was very fortunate because we were contacted by Mike Piatek and Jeff Lifson because they had found a way to quantify HIV RNA in the plasma. <clears throat> and so we started working with some of the early drugs that later became the heart regimens that we think of in 96. But around 92, 93, we started working with protease inhibitors. And this was one patient who had a CD4 count of seven and a viral load of a million, who we gave monotherapy and denivir to. And this is what happened. His viral load dropped like a rock, just with indinavir monotherapy. And from prior work we had done, we said, gosh, viral replication must be very fast for this to happen, because if you block, and then days later you start seeing this kind of decrease in viral load, that means there's a lot of churning that you just stopped, and it also means that the lifespan of the virus is probably short, but we didn't know how short. We took this graph and we partnered with a guy at Princeton uh, named Martin Novak, who at I think age 33 was the Einstein Professor of Mathematics at Princeton. So, you know, one of those, you know, like Bellini or the, uh, those kind of uh, guys who, who have early success in math. And he modeled this with us. And from this, we came up with a couple of um, thoughts. But before I get into it, I want to ask the question. Um, how many HIV viruses are produced in a day in an HIV-infected patient? Go ahead and vote. We're doing Broadway musicals just to kind of keep it light. You may have seen this play a billion times, perhaps. Okay, I can't read it from here. But it, the actual answer is greater than a billion. So there's one to 10 billion viruses produced every day, day in, day out, in an infected patient. One billion to 10 billion. If that's not striking enough, in hepatitis C, it's 100 billion to a trillion viruses a day. What? Yes, it's absolutely true. So this was a work that uh, you'll notice in that author list is Martin Novak, somewhere buried next to Beatrice Hahn and, uh, and, and me in there somewhere. But this is, the, uh, this is the story from that single graph. That's it. This is what came out of it. So you have HIV-infected cells that are up here, and the target are CD4 lymphocytes that are not infected. But the normal resting ones, as in indicated here, are in yellow, and they're really not targets of the virus because they're protected against infection through mechanisms I'm not gonna go into, but let's just say for the most part, an uninfected, non-activated T cell is not infectable. But less than 1% of the total body's CD4 cells are activated at any moment in time. And so the activated T cells are the targets. How do you know this clinically? Well, you know that if somebody has an active genital infection, say herpes, at the time they're exposed to HIV, their chance of infection is four to five times higher than if they didn't have a genital infection. Why? Because there's activated T cells in the neighborhood. That's one way you can remember this. So the activated T cells, uninfected, are the targets. 
And so this got, puts out, as we just talked about, one billion to 10 billion viruses in a day. And they come down and they infect these guys. And then you get to repopulate. Well, using that same graph, we could determine that the lifespan of the HIV-infected cell is on the order of about a day. So it, does it, it gets infected, does its thing, the factory puts out as many viruses as it can, and then it dies off to be replaced by another cell. And this goes on day in and day out when somebody's infected. If you give antiretroviral therapy, you block that 100%. And when you're blocking the uninfected cell from becoming infected, when those cells at the top die in them on the order of about a day, they're not replaced. And therefore, fewer viruses are produced, and therefore, viral load drops. As I've already alluded to, there are some cells that don't die in a day. And those are so-called the reservoir cells. And they live on the order of years. And the thing is that once they're infected, they'll stay infected. But if they multiply or divide, virus goes with them. So you're not reducing the reservoir just by waiting. It's going to be there until we can find, through cure research, a way to identify every one of these guys and find a way to selectively eliminate them. And that's not happening yet. So while the work continues, I wouldn't hold my breath for an effective cure in the next three to five years. Maybe there will be, beyond bone marrow transplant. So that's the story. And that all came from that graph. Pretty amazing. My lesson to the students and trainees I work with is to say, when you, if you're embarking on an academic career, rule number one is always work with people who are smarter than you are. That really helps. So another study that was done looked at people before and after initiation of therapy with a lymph node biopsy. And this study helps us understand what's happening on a cellular level inside each person who's infected. So if you get oriented to this slide, the plasma viral load is on the left-hand axis, is on the uh, y-axis. And you can see it goes up to several million copies per mil. And on the, uh, on the x-axis below are the number of cells in the body producing virus. And if you look carefully, each each line has two dots, and that's where before therapy and after. And you can see everything drops, both in terms of viral load and in terms of numbers of cells. And what that says is that viral load in the body is directly proportional to the number of cells in the body producing virus at that moment in time. I'm going to say that again, because that's very important. The plasma viral load that you measure out of the blood say it's 30,000 copies, that plasma viral load is directly proportional to the number of cells in the person producing virus at that moment in time. That's key. And it leads to another question. At steady state, it's like a physics test, when actively producing cells die, it's replaced by how many newly infected cells? So you're at steady state, your viral load, say 30,000, we know that the viral load is proportional to the number of cells in the body producing virus. When that one cell dies, how many replace it? One, 25, 100, 1,000, or it depends on the viral load. Go ahead and vote. 
Dear Evan Hansen, great play. It's on Broadway right now. We start with stars in our eyes. We start believing that we Okay. Only 11% of you got it right. And I suspect that, that people that got it right were either engineers or have a physics background. All right, or maybe not. They just remember basic things. So that by definition, at steady state, if viral load is proportional to the number of cells, when one cell dies, it's replaced by precisely one cell. It doesn't matter what the viral load is. Sure, if the viral load's a million, a whole lot more cells are infected. But when one dies, it's replaced by one. So let's take this concept and apply it to the real world where we live every day. So no, this is not a kidney. This is my attempt to draw a lymph node with PowerPoint. All right? So the little blighter gray dots there are the germinal centers. And in the paracortical region, that's where T cells live. And so for the color scheme here, yellow equals unactivated T cell and blue equals activated T cell, but in this case, let's just call it an activated T cell that's infected with HIV. So if we take an example where the viral load is high, you can look at this thing and find, oh, there's several, several cells there I can see that are infected because the viral load is high, more cells are infected, it's easier to see, but if the viral load's less than 50, it's like, where's Waldo, right? You gotta look hard, you gotta go through many fields just to find the one, making the point that viral load is proportional to the number of cells. Now, let's dive into the microenvironment in an untreated patient, deep, deep into the paracortical region. And this is what you might see. Untreated, you've got a cell sitting there infected, kicking out as many viruses as it can in its one day lifespan before it dies. And it's surrounded by a bunch, for the most part, of uninfected, unactivated, CD4 cells, so it's firing blanks. Another way to think about it, if you remember the movie Night at the Roxbury with Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell, familiar? And they're always trying to hit on somebody and they're really obnoxious and nobody wants to get near them, right? Until this one unfortunate drunk person comes around. That's the activated T cell. And just like in populations of humans, where viral transmission is from one person to another. You can study the population all you want to, but that transmission event is from one person to another. The same thing's happening at the cellular level inside an infected person. So you've got a cell in the middle kicking out its vibes, or its viruses in this case, and it puts out one in this case, and here comes that uninfected but activated CD4 cell, and boom, it gets infected. And on average, that new infection happens right about that time that cell dies at steady state. That's what's going on every day globally within that host who's infected with HIV. Well, what does that mean to us in practice? When we give antiretroviral therapy, what we're doing is we're putting a condom around that cell, in essence. We're putting a force field, whatever metaphor you want to use. So that when, remember, all we're doing is protected that activated, uninfected cell from becoming infected. So when this guy sends out his vibe or her vibe, no binding, no entry, in case of entry inhibitors, no reverse transcription, 
no integration, and in the case of a protease inhibitor, that virus that's being kicked out of the infected cell is not mature, therefore uninfectious. The net effect each time is that the cell at risk does not get infected under the state of antiretroviral therapy. Simple enough, right? So that when this guy dies, it's not replaced. And what does viral load do? Plummets. That's all we're doing. Every time we treat, that's all we're doing. And to me, it's kind of cool to think about it at this, in this way, because now we understand why it's important to have a steady state of drug level to protect those cells every day. Doesn't mean if you miss a dose, you're gonna get, no. It, it, doesn't ta it takes a while for the drug to leave and the cells to become uninfected. But you go four, six, 12 weeks, eight weeks, without therapy, then this, those little embers, the, those residual cells are gonna spontaneously kick out some virus and that's gonna infect and then you reignite the fire and you're back to where you were. And interestingly, when that fire reignites, the set point we were talking about almost goes back to the same place it was before they ever got treated. That's miraculous to me. So if it was 30,000 before treatment, less than 20, they stopped taking their medicine. Four weeks later, it starts to come back. Six weeks later, it's 30,000. How does that happen? Well, there's a, there's a sort of interesting give and take between the host and the virus where the host is tolerant of a certain amount of cells producing virus, if you want to think about it that way, because the way that those cells die is most often the immune system clearing it out. And that's another reason why HIV progresses, because the immune system's fighting as hard as it can to suppress this virus. And when you take away that viral replication, the immune system can kind of relax and go more about its business, people feel better, and they don't get the progression of dysfunction biologically that they used to have when the virus was going unabated. And so you can also think about this in terms of iris. Somebody with advanced infection, high viral load, say, low CD4 count, they've been going against this thing for 12 or 15 years before you see them newly diagnosed, say, with pneumocystis or with PML, God knows what, and you treat, and all of a sudden, the immune system goes, wow, I can breathe again. And then it looks around and goes, what's that? And starts to attack it. Because it couldn't recognize the PJP or the, the JC virus or the MAC or whatever it was. Now it's woken up and four to six weeks later, after starting therapy, you get an inflammatory response, an iris type reaction. And so that explains how that happens. Another take-home point clinically is that all HIV pathogenesis, this is probably overstated, but it's generally true, is driven by viral replication. You stop replication, you stop disease progression, period. The virus is evil, and you get rid of the evil by stopping the replication. There it goes, trying to get in again. Nope, not gonna happen. Now, what happens if that condom has holes in it? Okay, let's take an example that we used to do back in the early, to, well, let's say mid-90s to prevent women from, getting, from transmitting to their baby. 
especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, we used to give monotherapy with nevirapine. Now, nevirapine, for those of you who've never used it, which is probably most people in the room, is a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor developed in the early 90s, pretty potent, decent, decent drug, um, but when you give nevirapine by itself, because of this high level of replication, the virus makes a mistake every time it replicates. Maybe at random, but it, it happens. So if you have a billion copies of virus produced a day and one mistake per each replication, by chance, you're likely to see a mistake made at, say, position 181 of reverse transcriptase, so you get a Y181 mutation. Or it could be K103, less likely with nevirapine, but you get the picture. And so that can happen, you're sitting down, right? That can happen in a matter of a day and a half. By two weeks with monotherapy and nevirapine, half of the viral population has converted to a resistance-conferring virus. By 28 days, 100% of the virus, if you drew it out of the blood at that patient's time point, 100% of that virus is going to be resistant. 100%. How does that happen? It's simply because of the high rate of replication and this picture. Because note, when that virus goes up, if that one virus that's infecting it happens to be just stoichiometrically, just by chance, having a Y181C mutation, it gets in and infects that newly infected cell in the upper right-hand corner. But guess what? From that point on, every virus that's produced by that newly infected cell has a Y181C in it. And suddenly, the verapine's not doing anything. That's how you get resistance with monotherapy. That's why we typically don't use one drug by itself anymore. We'd love to. And we'll talk tomorrow and the next day about using two drugs. We went to three because we just did. We evolved there. And we found that four, five, and six wasn't necessary. So three drugs seem to be the sweet spot, right? But that doesn't mean that three is required. As you'll see data tomorrow, two can work just fine. It just has to be the right two, et cetera. That's how resistance happens. You want that. You want a, a, a full protection of the cell, not partial. So that's the background on the back to basics. And hopefully, it helps you think as you're explaining things to patients um, why it's important to take their medicine regularly, what you're doing when you give antiretroviral therapy, and why you might be okay getting by with two drugs instead of three. Now, let's, let's transition to when should we start therapy. We should start it at which CD4 count. Go ahead and vote as a threshold. Trip Gulick doesn't like this play. He calls it rant. I call it rent. It's a pretty good play. Yeah. days of inspiration, playing, hooking, making something out of nothing. The need to express, to communicate, going against the grain, going insane. All right, everybody got this right, mostly. Okay, and that's right, but we didn't get here easily, right? We're there, but it was a, it was a wicked road. So early on, I mean, the work that I described to you just a minute ago 
we had been a part of in other sites as well, it just wasn't us, in the early to mid-90s. So I'm thinking one to 10 billion viruses a day, the virus is evil, it's causing disease. I'm thinking to myself, why in the world are we waiting for a specific CD4 count to start treatment? That makes absolutely no sense biologically. And we're all trained to think biologically when we come up with our treatment plans. And people were giving different reasons. And the thing also to remember when you think about this is that how do we get CD4s locked in there in the first place? Some of you I see in the room know how that happened because you lived it, but most of you didn't. Here's the answer. When AZT was first created, it was, start, it was created in 1964 as an anti-cancer drug that didn't work. So it got put on the shelf at the National Cancer Institute. When Barb, Bob Yarchuin and Sam Broder and their colleagues started working on tissue culture, looking at HIV, they knew that there was a reverse transcriptase step and they knew that nucleosides were gonna be required. So they went to the shelf at the NCI and they found all kinds of nucleosides. There was different, amino, uh, different uh, uh, building blocks, uh, adenosine or thymidine, whatever, and they found these analogs. So they tried this one that had an azido group, an N3, at the three prime position of that ribose ring, and they saw it work remarkably well. But then they were gonna give this to people. And who are you gonna choose? You're not gonna take people doing well and try this brand new drug on them because the only endpoint you really have is are they alive or not after a year or two or three. So they did a study of people that had had prior pneumocystis pneumonia or they had a CD4 count less than 200 to sort of segregate that off the test. And they found a huge mortality difference in those who got AZT versus those who didn't. And that, unfortunately, was the beginning of hooking starting therapy to a CD4 count. And we suffered, I suffered, maybe not all of us suffered, I suffered mightily watching all these trials being designed based on a CD4 count. Made no sense to me, but we pushed on. So here's, here's how I used to look at it. One, it really doesn't matter. The point is that there's gonna be a lot of comorbid conditions and there's more with HIV than in somebody who's the same age. Why is that? Well, it's probably because of inflammation reacting to all that ongoing replication, and that inflammation is not good. And we have evidence of that inflammation in multiple studies. I'm picking a couple here, but notice on the left-hand side, there's untreated people that have much more activation than an HIV-treated, but even the HIV-treated person has a little bit more than the uninfected, though both are substantially less inflammation and activation than someone off therapy. So why is it good for that to continue? Why wouldn't you want to put them from that pink bar um, to the blue one at least? More data, if you treat early in infection, right after acute seroconversion, the inflammation is better than if you waited a couple of years, um, comparing uh, the second and the fourth column. So generally speaking, um, Treatment biologically, in my view, was screaming at us to start whenever we could. Oh, by the way, just as a sidebar, which we'll talk about on tomorrow, uh, during the case discussion, I'm gonna bring up a case of an elite controller who's got this under control. Remember this picture and the one before, this one in particular, when you go to answer your question, should elite controllers be treated? Should elite controllers be treated? 
Then I was part of a study with Mari Kitahara and some really smart, again, uh, statisticians who used a different modeling technique um, and determined by looking retrospectively and mimicking a clinical trial that waiting until a CD4 count was below 350 as opposed to starting at 500 or higher had a 1.7 hazard ratio for death. Waiting was associated with death through a modeling study of a cohort or two or three or 20. You wouldn't believe the reaction negative to this. Oh, it's all statistical mumbo jumbo. And, and I, I ordinarily would get with that camp, but the biology, this supports the biology. This is what you would expect to see. Well, the group that was anti all this starting earlier said, well, we wanna do a clinical trial of early therapy versus late. I'm thinking, do it if you gotta, but it seems like a waste of time and money to me, but knock yourself out. Guess what? When they got done, their relative hazard for bad things happening for people who started later was 1.7 relative risk. Is that coincidence? Maybe, hmm, maybe not. And this is what that study showed. So finally, all of you answered the question, any CD4 account, because this finally put the nail in the coffin of, of that question. Even at the time that Mari Kitahata's study was published, there were economists who showed that starting early, even though drugs were expensive, was still cost effective in terms of preventing downstream problems. And the conclusion of this study in 2005 was starting art earlier rather than later is a cost effective strategy. But here's a practical thing. So let's say somebody has a CD4 count of 500 today and they're 30 years old. If you're gonna to start today, great. The other person, that same person, you say, no, no, I'm gonna wait till the CD4 count gets to 350. On average, that takes five years. So you're gonna start at age 35. This is what it looks like. CD4 count of 650, CD4 count of 500, you're gonna make a 500 threshold. It takes three years, five years for that to happen. In the first example, if they get successfully treated, they're gonna be on therapy for about 40 years if they live to age 70. If they live to age 80, obviously 50 years. If they started at age 35 while you watch them just kind of progress till their CD4 count got to 500, they're gonna be on therapy for 35 years and if they live to 80, 45 years. What in the world is the difference in the big picture, we're like arguing about something that is practically meaningless, my opinion. Yet, the question to me was, couldn't there be harm from all that ongoing replication? And my personal thinking at this point and even before is that unchecked viral replication sets the stage for future comorbid conditions and other things that may be irreversible. I can't swear to that, but it certainly isn't good. This has moved into the question of rapid art, but I will tell you that rapid art, which we're gonna talk about that tomorrow as well, but whether you start today, like we're newly diagnosed, or two weeks from now, biologically there's no difference. So it's okay to wait if you wanted to. 
if it, if it takes too much for you to get it started today, there, the reason to start immediate or very soon after diagnosis is a, is a social reason, is a psychological reason, is a practical reason. It, it, you get better return on follow-up the closer you start therapy to the time of diagnosis. So, Steve Johnson's gonna talk to you about therapy. I'm just introducing the topic by just showing you this amazing slide. And I've mentioned zidovudine back in 1987, followed by a bunch of nucleosides. You'll notice that in 95, dual therapies start coming along, triple therapies, et cetera. But you can tell that there's an awful lot of progress. Going back, just to remind you that all of these drugs use the life cycle of the virus as their reason, their biologic reason why they were developed. And, uh, and you'll hear more about each of these in his talk in a minute. This is an important concept. Uh, and it's about what is failure, but in this case, what's immunologic failure? So normally when we start treatment, you'll see the viral load starting at baseline, dropping several logs such that by six weeks, most of the virus has been suppressed and it continues going towards less than 20 or target not detected. And usually the CD4 count bounds nicely upward. There are some patients though, who had the virologic response, but their CD4 count doesn't go up. A lot of us heads nodding, I've seen that, right? Let's think biologically, why is that? Is that because the drugs that you've given them are failing? No, the virus is still suppressed. What it means, if you look carefully at that first six weeks, what this yellow dotted line set of patients are missing is a redistribution of cells from lymphoid tissue into the circulation. That happens when you start treatment, going back to this whole tenant I've given you, when you start treatment, you stop the replication in the lymph nodes and in the lymphoid tissue where replication happens, it does not happen in the bloodstream. The bloodstream is just where virus is spilling over where you can get it and measure it. The replication is occurring in lymphoid tissue where those cells are like at the bar in the Roxbury, all packed in there talking to one another. That when that's happening, there's inflammation associated with that transmission. You stop the replication, the inflammation subsides and adhesion molecules like ICAM and VCAM that were elaborated in large degrees are no longer put out. The cells whew, are released back into circulation and you get this bump. Notice carefully after the three to four months, notice that the slope of both lines, the green and the dotted yellow, are pretty much the same. That's the recovery of CD4 cells through its natural replenishment, which takes a long time. So what you've missed is that bump. And the answer to why you've missed it is because that individual who didn't get the bump, they had, their lymphoid tissue has been more destroyed by their ongoing replication for years, and there's not enough architecture left in a lot of their lymphoid tissue to store or, or stack up CD4 cells that when the, 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 um, the, the ICAMs and VCAMs are, are diminished, there's nothing to release because there's just nothing stored there. Does that mean the patient's in worse shape biologically? Actually, yes, but that's not a question of the antiretroviral therapy. That's just that we got treatment started too late. They, 
they clinically don't do quite as well as the others, but it's not dramatically different. Certainly better off that they hadn't been treated, but that's the reason. Can you do anything about it? Nope. Nope. Nothing's going to change it just the way they are, and you just continue your treatment. And But above all, don't start swapping therapies around with their antivirals because you think that you're going to get better coverage. People have added extra antivirals. Guess what? Didn't do a thing because the biology is telling us a different reason, which is accurate. So let's conclude. Understanding the viral life cycle is critical to understanding the basis of antiretroviral therapy. Viral replication is dynamic. One to 10 billion viruses produced a day and is the driving force of viral pathogenesis. The virus is evil. You stop the replication, all kinds of good things happen. The patient can live a normal lifespan. The patient can live a healthy existence for the most part. And oh, by the way, the virus isn't transmitted to, to their sexual partner. That's pretty cool, right? Antiretroviral therapy interrupts replication completely, halting the damage done by HIV. We'll also talk about blips tomorrow, um, what that means. Antiretroviral therapy protects uninfected cells from becoming infected and has no effect on the cells already infected. You are not going to cure someone with today's antiretroviral therapy alone. And all drugs target specific sites, and that's what we take advantage of. So that's kind of a dive deep into the basics, and I hope it creates a good foundation for you to think about as we go into tomorrow and the next several days when we talk about therapy. I think we're going to, I don't know if we're going to do questions now or postpone. Yeah, we're going to continue on. So I'll be back in a little bit, and we'll do questions. Thank you.